Hey everybody, this is Patrick Auda talking all the way from the Czech Republic and you're listening to the Left Coast Pirates. Seconds to go down by two. Here's Whitehead. Guarded by Ochefu. Gets the step into the lane. Goes to the bucket. Layup. Rolls around it in. And a foul. Whitehead ties the game. Pow from Trenton. Woo! What Trenton makes, the world takes. From just west of the Ward Place Gate in San Diego, California. He is Mike Deziri, class of 2001. I am Tom Kaharski, class of 1997. And we are Left Coast Pirates. Welcome to this week's edition of Left Coast Pirates. It is February 21st, 2021. Man, we had a pair of games this week that were just hard on the eyes. But Mike, let me just start off with saying something. I am not a gambling man, Mike. You know I don't do that. But if I was, I know there's one irrefutable fact that I could lay my hard-earned money on when it comes to Big East basketball. And that's you're going to win some games you're not supposed to, and you're going to lose some that you just shouldn't have. And here we are, Mike, another season drawing to an end, and now we're in a scenario where the Pirates have to be perfect. Here's my issue. By no means is this season lost in terms of their ability to kind of like to make the NCAA tournament, right? But this team really needed to go 4-0 against the bottom four teams in the conference over the course of this three-week stretch, you know? And now they've left themselves with essentially no margin for error. And we kind of didn't really play it up in the previous episodes as like must-win games. But in the back of our heads, we're like, you got to win these, right? Some people are now saying that, don't worry about it. It's okay. 12 and seven in the big East is a lock or third place in the big East has to be in the dance. But let me do this. I, I want to turn back the clock to almost 20 years ago. It was the 2002, 2003 season and no big East team at that point had ever won 10 conference games and missed the dance. Lewis Orr's team had just ripped off a nine game winning streak, which included knocking off number seven, Pitt Tommy number 10, Notre Dame. And they finished conference play at 10 and six. But they also went six and five in the non-conference with no quality wins during that stretch. And on Selection Sunday, the Pirates made history by getting snubbed by the damn committee. So how anyone can put us in lock status if the Hall gets two more wins is beyond me. Controlling their own destiny was taking three out of the last four and possibly one at MSG. And now by not taking care of business, they have done what many Kevin Willard teams have done previously. They back themselves into a corner. They have people doubting them. And they must come out fighting for their tournament lives in every remaining game. You know, Mike, a few weeks ago, we spent a better part of a pair of podcasts losing our minds about a pair of losses. 
You know, a last second loss at Nova where the game end execution was lacking, followed up by a collapse at home to Creighton. And you know, those pundits who keep saying we're a lock for 12 wins said, hey, everybody needs to relax. The Pirates are still a lock. The season just has to break the way it should. I think we need to remind those folks this is the Big East and nothing really breaks the way it should ever. But with that said, this week on the podcast, we will review the win against DePaul and the loss at Georgetown. We will briefly preview the Butler game and we'll take our first look at what we think the Pirates need to do down the stretch to make their fifth straight NCAA tournament appearance. But first, Seton Hall 60, DePaul 52. If you were looking for an enjoyable game, you tuned into the wrong one, folks. DePaul crawled out to a lead on the Pirates as it took eight and a half minutes for the Blue Demons to build a 13-5 lead. A Jared Roden three gave the Hall their first lead at 22-21, but a Ray Salvne buzzer-beating three gave DePaul a four-point lead at halftime. The game was tight in the second half with four ties and three lead changes. The final one came with nine minutes left to play, and the Hall was able to hold off the Blue Demons just long enough down the stretch all right tommy the box score on this one sandro big time step up in this one 25 points 11 rebounds four assists add to that two steals and two blocks jared roden filled it up with 17 points and miles kale chipped in 11 for DePaul, tommy i i love this name paulie paulie cap 15 points and 10 rebounds double double on the night uh, freshman Kobe Elvis stepped up with 13 points, four boards, and three assists for the injured Charlie Moore, but he also channeled his inner Charlie Moore with nine turnovers. Uh, the teams combined to shoot 37% for the game. DePaul was plus seven on the glass. They also had 19 turnovers, which allowed Seton Hall to turn that into a 19-4 to advantage on points off. Tom, turning point for me. Sandro scores this like little turnaround jumper with 340 to play. He gets the friendly roll and the, and the pirates now extend their lead 55 to 52. Little did we know at the moment that neither team would score for the next three minutes and 18 seconds, not a free throw, nothing, not a zilch until the pirates iced the game from the line with a couple of miles kale free throws. That's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. Did anybody want to win that game? Hey, Mike, you know, we love to put our blue-tinted glasses on here, but I don't know that there's much to talk about here. I mean, the narrative was, you know, a win is a win, and a loss here could have been a crippling blow to the resume. I mean, DePaul right now, let's put it into perspective, DePaul at the time was 179th in the net, and to give you some sort of idea what that means, that is worse than our friends at Wagner and Prairie View. I mean, it would have been a horrendous loss here. You found a way to get a Prairie View reference into this podcast. That's pretty good. You, you would think that you played Prairie View last year, and that's it. You're probably never going to say that name for another decade. But you got it in there. I, I like it. I don't know that if you would have asked me if Prairie View was really a Division One school, I could have answered that truthfully before last year. No, it, it, look, this would have been a horrible, horrible loss uh, in terms of metrics. 
So like, yeah, at the end of the day, we're gonna we're gonna break it down and we're gonna talk about the things they could have done better. But yeah, at th- this point of the year, you're gonna look back and just say, all right, it, it's a win. It, it's a W in in the win column. It looks like that to the metrics to the committee on their you know their team resume sheet. It, it sucks to the eyes for what we saw, but yes, a win's a win. Move forward. All right, but but the, look, I, I'm not gonna move into sour grapes and grapes before giving my boy his pat on the back here. You know, they needed somebody to step up and kind of grab this game by the throat because nobody seemed to want to, you know, make the play to win the game except for Sandro. You know, he put them on his back in this one. 38 minutes, he took 19 shots. He scores his 1,000th career point in the process of helping them win this game. And Tom, he only had three turnovers. (laughs) But did they let him have the ball after that 1,000 point? That's my question. And there was like a little glance when he was on the free throw line over to the sideline, a little wink, like, yeah, that was a thousand, right? But you know, in the heat of the moment, they weren't stopping the game for a thousand. You no. stop you stop the game for maybe like a two thousand or a record breaker, you know, a thousand's more of like a post-game acknowledgement kind of thing. You, you know, if they really had a crowd in, maybe the announcement comes up and he gets a little bit of a clap. But yeah, moving. I mean, what it was that? 46 player to in 45th. program history. 45th. 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 Oh, I was close. close. Miles Kale could be 46. He's coming up on it. It's going to take miles a little work to get there, but yes, yes. But Mike, this was, like I said, to start this off, it was an ugly game. It was hard on the eyes. And and have you ever seen a game start off so slow? Yes. That's the problem. We have. <laughs> like we, we knew that in this stretch, you have some poor teams that you have to just kind of come out, smack around, put them away. We keep on saying, blow the doors off of them. And they haven't done that in this stretch of games where they've kind of struggled, even though they've gotten a couple W's. You gave a team like DePaul that really you should have just kind of sent back on the plane flight home every chance to stay motivated for the rest of that game. Tom, the numbers, 2 of 16 to start that game. 2 of 16, 1 of 11 from 3. That did not even count the three turnovers in that mix. And for the first 10 and a half minutes, they only scored five points. But, but what blows my mind most, you go through that kind of rough stretch to start the game and there's no timeout by your coach. They had to wait to the 643 mark of the first half, trailing 19 to 12 before Willard was like, timeout, I've seen enough. You know, at, at a certain point when you're shooting like that, you would assume that the coach would say timeout and, and give some sort of, you know, great philosophical, ingenious idea like, hey, Drive the ball. You yeah, know I mean, there was ing- nothing ingenious. going on there. Ingenious. Stop shooting 11 threes. <laughs> I got an idea. We're the third biggest team in the country. Let's pound it inside for a little bit. Or, or better yet, you know, Sandro goes on to have a great game. How about you find a way to call timeout, get the ball to him on a couple trips in a row, and kind of stem the tide of what wasn't working. I just, it didn't make any sense. And you know what? What didn't make any sense was kind of how limited we were relative to our big three. We didn't get any other support. We had two starters, not score. You always joke and say, hey, we're playing four on five. We were playing three on five today in terms of the box score. And the rest of the team, Tom, scored a total of seven points for the entire game. Three of them comes from the Tyree Samuel bank three. It was kind of a head scratcher. I mean, let's, let's start in the middle. Let's start with our big man, Ike. You know, we're not expecting Ike to go out there and have, you know, offensive, you know, outputs, uh, you know, that are going to put them in double digits or something like that. 
but he was being bullied down low by guys that looked like they were a hundred pounds lighter than him. Well, they are. <laughs> Come on, man. You're, you're this physical specimen. Throw some weight into it, buddy. Yeah, he had like four or five opportunities, like point blank at the rim. And you know what? If he get if he makes two of them, you could live with it and say, all right, that's just Ike. His, you know, his footwork is still, you know, maturing. His hands aren't the greatest, but he had the ball literally two feet from the basket on several occasions, and he came away with nothing for the entire game. That was that was a tough pill to swallow. And then Shavar just, you know, it just wasn't his night. He could he could not get to the rim. His jump shot, little fadeaway was not falling. He couldn't get his three to go down. Yeah, that, that, that's a tough one. I mean, it's just a, it's a tough game. You're being very kind there, Mike. But, you know, what was probably the most disappointing factor of this game, and I think we could probably close this out on, is, one, DePaul is just not a very good team. And then add to it that they were missing what, what's considered their two best players. The walking turnover, Charlie Moore, we make fun of him all the time, but he's still one of their guys that puts the ball in the basket. And Javon Freeman Liberty, who put a beating on us last time. Tom, you are never fair to Charlie Moore. You are basically, <laughs> you're like, oh, it's probably an improvement that Charlie Moore is not playing. Uh, ask, ask St. John's how that worked out uh, last night. Charlie Moore is back in the game and he's got 24 points on, on efficient shooting numbers. I think he was seven to 12, eight assists, six rebounds, and they pull off the upset at St. John's. Stop me if I'm wrong here. If Charlie Moore plays and he plays anywhere close to that stat line, we lose that game. Or if, or if Javon Freeman Liberty plays. I mean, I think he put in 22 the last time we played. So, I mean, you know, all fairness to Charlie Moore, his talent has never been in question. It's more of his judgment uh, and it, the way he turns over, the way he forces the shot and things like that. But it was sad to watch that a team that is that downtrodden as DePaul is still was able to stay with us with their two leaders on the sidelines. So, I mean, uh, the less said about this game, the better. I'll, I'll end on this last point. We complain about coaching decisions and philosophy and shot selection and end game management at times with Kevin Willard. How would you feel if we were breaking down Dave Lato right now? Oh, I, I'm telling you, I think we should just pack it up from San Diego, move out to Chicago and see if we can get on that staff because that's the Teflon Don out there, man. How do you not get rid of him? They brought him back, Mikey. Let's just do this. A win is a win. And thank God that it was. Otherwise, we'd be breaking down an 0-2 week and it would be catastrophic. Well, speaking about catastrophic, Georgetown 81, Seton Hall 75. The Hoyas came out smoking hot, making four of six from three, building a 28-16 lead. Back-to-back -back threes by Sandro helped cut the lead to three, heading into the break. The Pirates came out with good energy in the second half with a 7-0 run to take the lead, but the Hoyas would respond with an 11-2 run of their own. The game remained close down the stretch, but ultimately, a pair of four-point plays for Donald Carey did the Pirates in. All right, Tommy, stats on this one. Sandro, the lone bright spot in the box score, 22 points, 9 of 18 from the floor, 5 rebounds. Jared Roden, 9 points, 9 rebounds, 6 of the offensive variety, uh, but all of his points were in the first half, and he finished the game 4 of 14 from the floor. Shavar Reynolds also chipped in 13 points and had 4 assists. 
Georgetown, I mean, they had some guys step up. They filled the stat sheet across the board here. Pickett, 20 points, seven rebounds. Belay, who we profiled in the behind enemy line segment this past week, 16 points. They didn't have answers for him either. Wahab, 11 points, 11 boards for a double-double. Looked like a beast in the middle. But I was most impressed by freshman Dante Harris running circles around the Pirates to the tune of 14 points, eight assists, and seven rebounds. Tommy, dare I say it, another freshman making impacts for the competition. All right, team stats, uh, three-point shooting. That's, this is the one that kind of jumps off the page and was probably the, the be-all and end-all at, at the end of the day. Seton Hall, 6 of 21, 28%. Georgetown, just an efficient 10 of 16 for 62%. And they also got to the line more than the Pirates. 11 of 16 for Seton Hall, 15 of 21 for Georgetown. That's normally our strength. Georgetown held an edge on the boards, plus two. And they also passed the ball much better than Seton Hall, 18 assists to Seton Hall's 12. I mean, I, I, I know this, the final score was close, but you start looking at this stat sheet and I, I don't, I don't know. And then to me, it's just the, the turning point. It was just backbreaking, right? You, you had two four point plays in the game, but Seton Hall rallies back after the first one from Kerry after they were down eight and they do tie the game up. And then immediately after they tie it up, here comes four point play. Number two, that breaks the 67 67 tie and Seton Hall never tied or led the game again after that. It's going to be really hard being positive about this game, Mike. I mean, there wasn't a whole lot that we seemed to do. There were a few runs that we could say, hey, great, you got down, you brought it back. But in general, there's not a whole lot of positivity to bring up about this game. Are you telling me you want to put nothing in the blue tinted glasses section? Are you still, I mean, you had a chance to sleep it off now, right? We're not, we're not doing this right after the game. You had I'm a chance. In my, to... I'm in my happy place. I've had my coffee. I had my morning bagel. I'm good. Uh, how about Sandro played really well on the offensive end again? How about that? I, I, I think he did. I think the pirates in general got toward the end of the whistle a few times. There were, I think at least three or four blown foul calls that could have made a big difference here but Sandro kept attacking and he and he looked good he his shot was falling it was a decent performance from Sandro uh, decent once again on the offensive side I'm not saying his overall game in this performance uh you know was well-rounded I thought he struggled on the defensive end again at times where he lost assignments he was the one who fouled carry for the second four-point play opportunity you know that was kind of a a really poor closeout uh, and, and he looked frustrated on the defensive side of the ball Tom, there is a long list of sour grapes and grapes, and I'm just gonna I'm gonna ask you, keep it together. Let's get through them, and let's move on with the podcast to the best are, of our are you ability here. We could do this together, Mike. Is that what you're saying? I, I will I will hold your hand throughout because I got okay. a long list here. Okay. I got a lot. Of, <laughs> let's see what happens here. Uh, I'm gonna start off with fast break execution, and we we kind of had a fun segment with this, you know, a couple of years ago where we're like, hey, do they even practice this? But sometimes it looks like they don't because they don't come out with the fundamental preparation on how they execute those breaks. Does it ever look like we have good spacing on our fast break? Well, you know, we've had actually a lot more fast break opportunities this year. I think we were taking passes. We're stealing off the wing and we're moving, but no, we don't run this break. Well, and there were two glaring uh, examples of it during this game. You know, there was a three on two break where instead of passing to a wide open Molson on the left, 
Roden decides to throw the t more difficult pass to a guarded Kale, who ends up having to go off his foot out of bounds. Additionally, later in the game, Kale and Roden have some really poor spacing on this break, so Kale ends up doing this kind of awkward Euro step and then just kind of flips it up. Roden actually, actually grabs the offensive rebound, but I don't think we turned it into anything because oh, the we defense did. was back. No, we did. Without that possession, they end up kicking it out to Sandro for a wide open three. But I mean, right off of the. Oh no, no, not on, not from the fast break itself. No, no, you're supposed to be getting layup opportunities on these fast breaks. And what I think sometimes is a lost art is when you have the three on two and the other guys are fanning out, taking away your potential driving lanes from the guys that should be filling it from the wings. What happened to that little 12 foot pull up jumper from the guy who's leading the break? You never see that in college basketball. Think about Seton Hall. You don't see that in college basketball anymore. But my point is, all as we go through this list of sour grapes and gripes, what I want to kind of highlight is these are small attention to details. And when you have lack of continuity or lack of focus on all of these little individual elements of the game, they're going to build up and ultimately kind of be a scenario that kind of does you in when you're not having a great night. So, all right, that's maybe two possessions. Now, I understand they got the Sandro three, but the reality is that's two possessions in general that you're not going to get points from. Speaking of giving away points, Tom, their three-point defense, which we thought was improving in that Providence game, all of a sudden has regressed back to it struggles again. I mean, we are 300th in the country in defending the three-point line. Georgetown goes 10 of 16. And across the board, inability to close out, poor rotations, leaving their feet, fouling the shooter, wide open looks. I mean, was there anything positive about our three-point defense? All this looks like you didn't read a scouting report. Last week, we had Kareem Copeland from the Washington Post on, and we asked him, you know, why is Georgetown playing so much better since the pause? And he brought up Jamarco Pickett's shooting a lot better. Chudier Belay is playing out of his mind, who's another guy that could shoot the ball from deep. What were you preparing for this week? I mean, there was, you want to talk about poor rotations. There was one point in the game where Georgetown kicked the ball out to the wing. Both Shavar and Sandro ran to the shooter. The wing ends up passing it out to the top of the key for a wide open three. You're going to give wide open shots. They're going to go in. Uh, that was going to be my final takeaway for this bullet point is everyone's complaining about, oh, it's the anomaly at 10 to 16. No, it's not an anomaly anymore. Teams are shooting well behind the three-point line against us and out of their normal percentages because when you get wide open looks, you're going to make better percentages. If you're forcing guys to make contested threes or chat, you know, be in better closeout position where they got to think about the D, yeah, they're going to shoot towards the norm. We don't put that kind of pressure typically on on the, on the offense. We just don't. This next bullet point, Tommy, for me is just, it, it, I don't know. It, it kind of gets to me because this is an effort stat. You know, the 50-50 loose ball, who wants it more, right? You're playing for a chance to be in the NCAA tournament. You know you got to have this game. To me, it's got to be heart. It's got to be desire. It's got to be floor burns. You got to be mucking it up every chance you get, uh, every opportunity you get a chance to do so. And did we get any loose balls in this game? Uh, it does not look so. I mean, this was a big point of chatter on the group text this week. You know, I mean, how many times did we see rebounds hit the floor, kind of sputter out, and there's Georgetown just corralling that ball? It's almost like uh, we I was watching Pirates just kind of stop, you know, kind of like run, almost run into each other and stop going after it. 
It was just, you just got to go after it. And Roden was poking at it with his hands, trying to like reach out for it. There was a time where it was Shabar and Obiagu. And I think Wahad got in there between the two of them to grab a rebound. My, my bigger issue was in these scenarios, they're all leading to points. And one of those loose balls that Roden didn't get to was the four point play uh, the first one by Carey, where Shavar ends up picking up his fourth foul and then has to come out of his out of the game with eight minutes to go in a crucial stretch. Yes, I understand the Pirates rallied back. But, man, that's, that's a big four-point swing to give up that late in the game. That's a bad foul by Shavar, too, but we'll, we'll move on from there. But guys are not playing well right now, to be honest with you. I mean, we're both big fans of the Colin Olsen. But let me just say... He is 0 for 2021 from three at this point, Mike. It's been since December 20th since my man hit himself a three-point shot. He's 0 for his last 17. He's shooting 19% from deep for the season. And there was one point where his defender must have been good seven feet off where Takal gave a little pump fake from three and nobody moved. He, he's got to stop shooting a three for now. I defend Takal more than anybody else. I mean, but he makes those two layups towards the end of the game when, you know, Georgetown is just trying not to foul. If you back out those two shots, he's two of six, right? I mean, are we, do we encourage him to keep shooting? I mean, how do you tell a player that when you get the ball on the wing with under five on the shot clock and there's not a defender three feet from you that you're not supposed to take that shot? What are you, what are you going to, what are you going to do here? I'm really confused. But the question is, you know, are we overplaying him at this point? I mean, why was he on the court? And the final seconds at this point, he has not been playing well. He's out there for defense. I, they, they, he's out there because of limited options to begin with. The the Aiken injury continues to have a trickle-down effect as to what you can do with your rotations. Uh, let, let, let's try to have a fun, positive spin here. How much were you rooting for that half-court heave not to go in so you could use that stat of over 20 over 2021 that would have been some irony i think there mike i think it would have been ironic that some late game doesn't really count shot goes in and he gets the monkey off his back that would have been kind of funny <laughs> well maybe he could have carried that momentum into the next game i don't know <laughs> yeah uh speaking of closing out i mean i think when you have a timeout and you're trying to close out plays for the first half or you're trying to make the critical plays down the stretch I want to get more out of these set offensive plays from Kevin Willard. And I feel like they've been lacking. You know, we, we've had some success last year in the Butler game and everyone's like, all right, Willard's got the monkey off his back. And that, that's like one play in a decade. But now we're back to just poor end game and end half execution. And it happened again in this one. They called timeout with like 10 seconds to go in the first half. And then Shavar dribbles into the lane, does his stop pivot move. And they just forced a pass at the feet of Samuel for a turnover. And we got no shot. And then late in the game, I think there was like 40 something seconds to go, or maybe uh, just under a minute coming out of the timeout. And Shavar takes a rushed off balance three when we're down by six. Yeah. That's, that's probably a long shot to complete the comeback at that point, but I'm guessing that's not the shot Willard wanted after that timeout. You know, there were a lot of plays that were rushed in general. I mean, we were making a lot of bad passes. We are putting together a lot of difficult passes. I mean, one toward the end of the game where Shavar took a difficult pass and tried to get it into Ike. And it's it's a question there where you're like wondering, do you understand your team at this point? You're, you're throwing a high-level difficulty pass and you're throwing it to the guy with potentially the worst hands on the team. So... Not just out of timeout plays. I mean, this was a whole lot of bad plays. I mean, what about the inbounds that he tried to force 
uh, late in the game to, I believe, uh, it might have been Roden, but I know the play was like, six, yeah, it was, Ro oh. it was like six seconds ago on the shot clock. Right. And, right. The, and they had, uh, out of bounds underneath. That was a big possession. And he didn't, that didn't even have a chance to get into the post. It's uh, an execution. So yes, out of timeout it should have better execution because you're drawing up a play, but in general, the execution hasn't been there. Is it just me or Shavar's passes just seem completely off lately? I mean, most of the passes that he's even making around the perimeter, guys are kind of like fumbling for the ball because it's not on point where, you know, it's going to put them in a catch and shoot position. I think even one of his assists to Sandro, uh, the ball was to his right. Sandro had to gather and then everybody just assumed that he was going to pass because he was so out of off balance that they all kind of rotated the, to the corner. I think it was to Killer Roden. And then Sandro hit his first three of his back-to-back -back threes in the first half. I mean, Shavar is making some passes where I'm kind of scratching my head. Does he is he really going behind the back at the three point line off the pick and roll, or he's doing this one where he does the pick and roll and does this like sky hook over his shoulder to kick across court? I just I don't see how you're going to end up with the accuracy to get your shooters in a great catch and shoot position unless the guy's wide open. That initial pass is not going to put the defense on its heels. The ball then needs to get swung again to try to find the next open look. I don't know. Something's off. Yeah. Well, I mean, he's trying to force things. I mean, he's forcing these passes to try to get them in there when they're not there. He's forcing some shots and 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 making some moves that he just can't get to. I mean, the final numbers on the day look decent enough, thirteen and four. But it wasn't a good thirteen and four. But you know, at least he didn't throw one over the backboard this time. I guess. Oh boy. Oh boy. Well, I I think there's a lot of frustration on the court right now. I think a lot of it came out in this game. And as good as Sandro was playing on offense, there were times where you could see the frustration in his body language. He might not have been shrugging as much as he was back in the day, but there were a couple drives where I think he was expecting uh, a call with the contact. I think he was expecting a little bit of a superstar treatment, which at this point. I think he deserves. And I personally, I think Willard needs to defend his alpha. There was a drive late in the game with about 240 to play where Sandro goes to the right side of the lane and then tries to put it back up with his left. He gets some contact. The ball ends up kind of trickling along the baseline and Georgetown takes possession. And Willard is down the baseline on the court doing his like double like jump stop, like waving his hands, trying to get the rest attention. Like, where's that call? okay, I, I like the energy. And then he has to back off because he can't get a tee there. How about you get a tee in the beginning of the second half when we had taken the lead and the refs start kind of giving them the favorable whistle? After a couple bad calls, there's no way Jay Wright would have stood for that for an entire second half. At what point does Willard have to sit there and go, hey, we are a perennial top team in the Big East. We should be getting the favorable call. Or better yet, you're going to listen to me as a 10 year coach in this league. And I have some clout. When does that come change? Stop you, clapping. You know, <laughs> stop clapping. You know, I, I, I don't think this led to us losing this game. The whistles were, were off balance today. And I normally don't bang on the refs for unbalanced whistles, but I mean, even, even Pete Gillen was given the refs grief three minutes into the game because yeah, there were two yeah. drives by the pirates that weren't called. There was a, there, there should have been a goaltending call that they missed on one of Sandro's shots. You know, it, there wasn't a favorable whistle. Tyrese got hacked on his dunk attempt going in. I mean, it, there was just a lot of stuff that they weren't calling. And then they were calling tic-tac fouls on Ike for bodying up. You can't let Wahab bang into you 
free of you know free and clear and then call a, a ticky tack on ike for holding his position i mean it just wasn't even i don't know that sandro was shrugging as much you know in past years we've seen him kind of shrug up his shoulders i think he had a good reason to vent his frustrations he is the alpha he is the guy that the big east is propping up as one of the five best players in the league and he should be getting that call maybe he needs to fall down a little bit like marcus howard used to all the time just to get a whistle i don't know man i was just the entire game i'm screaming whoa did you see that call when we really should be screaming, whoa, did you see that about other positive plays, Tommy? Oh, that no? was a terrible transition, just, but let's go into it. Hey, man, man, when I'm living up to your standard, it's not that bad, <laughs> trust me. All right, I, I, look, there were a couple moments here. This is, all, this is all coming back to Sandro here on the offensive end. Sandro had this just elite NBA-type talent crossover that led to a monster dunk in the DePaul game. And then later on, he also backs it up with this one-handed full extension throwdown in traffic in the lane with his right hand. And then against Georgetown, he also gives you this behind the back drive where he lays it up with his left. Once again, I thought he drew contact should have been an N1, but he gave you three picturesque plays throughout these two games that are all equally nominated for the woe, did you see that moment? I'm even going to go a step further. I'm going to name you a fourth. That fast break that he led where he ends up dishing the ball off to Kale for the reverse layup and he sidesteps the potential charge. You know, the defender came up to try to stop momentum. He dishes and then he sidesteps off of it. You know, that was a pretty play in and of itself. You got one that stands out in particular that you have a favorite of? I'll go with the behind-the-back drive against uh, Georgetown. Just seeing someone that's 6'11", put that ball behind his back like a guard, that's that's my kind of game. And it was the put the ball behind your back with forward momentum. As you see guys like do the behind-the-back where they have to stop there in their tracks to change gears. He did it where he came full wraparound. We used to practice that play back in high school, and most guys can't get it to the point where you push it forward to your lead hand at that point and continue to blow by the defender. He made that move, and he was a good step and a half. I, I see you on the Zoom. You're I'm like, surprised you surprised you remember high school, Mike. Come on, I, man. I, I, I thought you were going to sit there and say. that in high school. Was that when you were starting, Mike? When uh, you were trying we to get Quincy to, to kind of like commiserate with Quincy about getting PT? Is that what why, was going why on? Why didn't you just say there's no way I think you could have pulled off that move even practicing in your backyard unguarded by yourself. Why did you uh, say that? I didn't want to give you a hassle. I was going to give you a mic flop for that, but we can talk about some bad announcing this week. Oh man. We're getting called out on Twitter now and being like, Hey, LCP left coast pirates. Did you hear the halftime? And I'm sitting there going, man, I had to feed my kids peanut butter and jelly at halftime. And I'm <laughs> now, now I'm running back and rewinding to go, what did I miss? What did I miss? And lo and behold, I'm listening to the halftime breakdown and there's Ryan Hollins from his home office studio, former UCLA Bruin. And they're asking him about what he thought about the first half. Now, Tom, you and I say this all the time. We edit this show. We get mush mouth, you know, and, but there, and that's excusable, right? But this time he wasn't even close and I, and it can't be this bad. If you're going to be the analyst in the studio, you got to know the names of the best players on the team. So we understand that Sandro's name is just really difficult to handle, but they put up a graphic showing that Georgetown has shot 50% in the half. And he goes, the Pirates have shot 50% in the half and they're losing. No, no, Georgetown was shooting 50% in the half. That's why they're losing. And then he goes on 
to call Sandro, wait for it, Mamush. And he wasn't trying to say that Samuel was playing bad. He really thought Mamu Kelishvili was Mamush. Come on, come on, man. Just give me a better effort. You're getting paid to do this. Give me a better effort. And then Brent Stover wraps it up by saying, good job, Ryan. <laughs> you know, I would give Ryan Hollins a lot more grief but for the fact that they had Pete Gillen calling this game. Now, Mike, in general, Pete Gillen sounds like a perfect character out of The Departed. You know, the guys that come down from Providence to rough up the convenience store clerk. But he was just awful. And I think what encapsulates his awfulness is the segment that they were breaking down about the schedule and whether the Pirates were in the tournament or not. Uh, before you play the clip, I think you're being too nice. I personally think that the the game has kind of passed Pete Gillen in terms of being able to broadcast. I, I think him being on the call in itself is a Mike flop. Oh, they sent the C team to cover this game. Terry Palm's a lot smarter than me, Tom, but they should definitely be in, I think. Mm-hmm. They played the best schedule in the Big East. They played at Louisville, Oregon in a neutral site, at Rhode Island, who's a good team, at Penn State, who's a good team, the Big Ten. The record isn't great, but they're a good team. So uh, nobody else in the Big East has played that. So I think they're in. They've got 10 wins. <laughs> Penn State, you know, they're a good team. Their record's not good, but they're a good team. You know, that Rhode Island team, they're a good team. That that 10-12 and 12 Rhode Island, they're a good team. Oh, they played Louisville. They played Oregon. You're going to mention they lost those games? Yeah, you know, I mean, you can... No, 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 wait! They got 10 wins! They got 10 wins! You can give them credit for for scheduling a tough uh, season. You could give them credit for not shying away from potential big games. I mean, let's not forget, Willard also put Baylor on the schedule, and, you know, but for the pause, we weren't able to have that game. But you can't give them credit for scheduling tough if you don't actually win most of these games, No. No, I mean, so I'm okay if you want to sit there and say, you know what, uh, with the COVID-19 challenges, with the, the pauses, uh, they have a strong strength of schedule. They have a strong non-conference strength of schedule relative to some of the other teams that really kind of lined up a bunch of cupcakes that they might be up against the bubble against. Give me something with some more depth. Don't just read their schedule, say every team is good, and then ignore the fact that they went one in three against that competition and that your highlighted victory is Penn state who is below 500, but they're good, but their record's not good. I'm just, it's once again, it's, it's lazy, it's sloppy. And it just starts painting a narrative that the average fan who's tuning into this game must go, well, okay, well, well, Seton Hall must be in. And we're going to talk a lot about that, Tommy, as we wrap up the show. You know, Gillen was just having a rough day. He speaks in kind of catchphrases uh, most of the game. And then he was talking about Pat Ewing at the end of it. And I thought you were going to jump all over this being the old Nick fan that you are. But, you know, he talked about how Pat played under all these great coaches. And he mentioned Pat Riley. He even brought up, you know, Chuck Daly, even though that was just for the dream team. I mean, how much coaching was Chuck Daly really doing outside of just making sure that the guys were getting minutes? He talked about John Thompson, obviously. Then he mentioned two interesting names. He mentioned Don Nelson and Larry Brown. Now, when Don Nelson started coaching the Knicks, Patrick Ewing hated it so much that he actually got him out of there. I mean, Nelson was put this offense in where he was swinging Patrick out to the three-point line. I mean, 
You've got one of the top 50 players of all time and you're not using him to his strength, but he's one of the reasons why Patrick was having a good time. And then he mentions Larry Brown. Mike, Larry Brown started coaching the Knicks in 2005. Patrick Ewan was gone in 2002. Wow. I mean, we've said that we've had some rough listens. He was horrible. We weren't getting anything deep from uh, Pete uh, Gillen. But you know what, Mike? We did have some deep thoughts from our good coach. So let's go to... And now, Deep Thoughts with Kevin Willard. I, I don't know if I would call this my favorite segment anymore because whenever Kevin gives us good quotes... Yeah, it gives us a lot of fun stuff to break down, but it brings up all the agita and all the anxiety from that tough loss again. So we're like walking a fine line with calling it my favorite segment because I, I, I really don't want to relive some of the things that he said this week, but, but we have to address it. Let, let's start with the DePaul game. He actually comes out with a quote that says, the last two games, we let them, the opponents, dictate how we play offensively. Now, at, in that quote, he's talking about Marquette and DePaul. Why? Why are we letting two of the, 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 at that moment in time, the bottom two teams in the Big East standings dictate how we play? You're the third place team in the Big East. You're in the NCAA tournament field. You're going to your fifth straight NCAA tournament. How do you let these other teams dictate how you play? Well, and it's not like either of those two teams you mentioned have any sort of matchup advantage with us. It's not like it's a Creighton game where they go out with five, you know, six, seven and under guys that can all shoot the three, which tries to negate your height advantage if possible. These are two standard teams. And, and in DePaul, you've got a team that's bad and missing their top players. So I don't understand it. I think he was just trying to deflect the poor play. But I mean, instead of tipping your cap to the opponent, take accountability for not playing uh, up to the level that you should be versus playing down to the competition. All right. But so then Gary continues uh, to ask him some more questions and he's kind of asking him about why they haven't played that well at home. We haven't played well here um, this year. We really haven't. We haven't played well yet. Um, you know, I think, I think it's, you know, when you're at home, you know, I talked to Wojo about this the other day, you know, they play in a really big arena too. And uh, I think us, you know, Creighton has fans, so it's different. So um, you're playing in a really big arena with, with like, you know, as a home team, you're supposed to have this energy and this vibe. And I think it's almost easier for the away teams to come in and play, have a little bit more energy. So it's just something I got to, you know, oh, I don't know. What was that? You know, it's typical Willard speak. You know, it's either I don't like playing in Walsh because we don't shoot well. I don't like playing at the Rock when there's no people. I don't like playing here. You know, just, just play your game, man. How many teams out there are playing poorly right now? Come on, play your game. So, so if they had a thousand fans in the building like Creighton has right now, they'd be playing that much better at home. What am I? What am I missing? I, don't, I just don't get it. And he's and he's mumbling and he's. I don't know. The Paul just have more energy. The road teams have more energy coming into our. But it's a neutral site experience right now for everybody, no matter where you go. How can you not get up for these games? The prize is right there. The the carrot is dangling. There's the NCAA tournament. You only get certain amount of opportunities in life to kind of grab that and seize the opportunity. He's not getting them motivated for these games. 
just play the next one. In this next one, Gary's asking him, should they be in survive and advance mode, or is it important to kind of get better uh, this late in the season, game by game still? I'm looking at this a little different. It's more survive and advance. Just because so many people are picking our, on our first four losses of our resume, um, I think it's unfair coming, you know, I think I'm hoping the committee really takes in the fact that, you know, we, we came out of a hard lockdown. Um, I mean, 14 days in dorm rooms for the whole team and staff, technically. Um, and, you know, the reason I played the games because we wanted to play, my kids wanted to play games. It, pro it wasn't the right move, but I didn't care at the time. You know, we, we had spent all this time battling COVID. We were going to play games. And I knew we weren't going to win those games. Um, and I was just really more hoping uh, as the year went on, you know, the committee is going to look at the fact that, right, look, you know, we're 10-1 against everybody else besides Creighton and, and Villanova. We should have beat Creighton. We didn't play good at the end, and we should have beat Nova one time. So um, I like where we are. I like. I think, you know, if we can get Bryce back healthy and, and playing the minutes he was, I really like us. <laughs> Tommy, I'm, I'm going to go out in a limb here. I'm going to guess – that Kevin Willard did not lock down in a dorm room for 14 days. How about that? <laughs> it, it just drives me insane because we've seen what other teams have done coming off of pauses. So you can't have it both ways, man. You know, let, let, let's go through the list of teams that had pauses and see how they came back from it. You know, you look at Villanova, you know, they were on pause for 27 days and they came back and they've been 3-0 since, and they beat us twice already, including the first game at a pause. Michigan, 20 day, 23 days themselves, 2-0. They beat both Wisconsin and Rutgers, both teams that have been ranked this season. Florida State had a pause, 14 days. They've gone 3-0 since, and they've beat number seven, Virginia. And then finally, hey, Mike, you know that team we just lost to, Georgetown? They were on a 21-day pause, and they're 4-2 and two since, including winning their first two, one of which was at number 15, Creighton. At this point in the season, there's enough body of work that the committee is going to have to look at and say, you know what, maybe we look at the pauses. Maybe we kind of reanalyze these teams a little bit, but there's enough pauses around the rest of the country where teams have positively handled the scenario and put really good results on the court that you just illustrated right georgetown's not a tournament team but those are other tournament teams and they've had really high level of success in coming out of pauses and willard wants them to ignore the one and three and what my bigger issue is in that entire statement and i expected us to lose those games what you, you know, I'd be a hypocrite if I took this and said, oh, that's just Kevin trying to put his team in a good light here. But, you know, a few years ago, Jim Beheim didn't coach the first few games for the Syracuse Orangemen, and they had a horrible record in those games. And then when it came up to tournament time, he's saying, well, I sure hope that the committee just looks at the games that I coached. It's I coach. Those are the ones that are important. Forget about what they did before I got back. I coach these games. It's just, it, you know, it wasn't good then. It's not good now. It, and it doesn't work that way. And I don't think it's coach speak because he has a comment after the Georgetown game that's similar along the lines like this. 
And I just think it truly kind of gets into his mindset that he has excuses for why they lose. And I want my coach to be the ultimate alpha on the team. I don't want there to be excuses. I want to kind of run through a brick wall. I want to overcome adversity. And then he makes these comments after the Georgetown game. And I wish we had it up on audio, but they're not published yet. So I'm just going to have to read it to you. He goes, I've always said this. Sometimes how you play depends on how your schedule has been. And three games in six days is a lot in this conference, especially since we haven't had a COVID break. I'm going to come back to that one. We haven't been on pause at all this year. So we've been doing what we're supposed to be doing. And when you come and play a team that's been off seven days, and this is your third game in six days, you're maybe not going to play the best. I'm not too worried. Obviously, I want to win every game, but I told my guys we battled. I thought they played really hard, but we just didn't have enough focus. I think the third game in six days really kind of wore us out a little bit. Let's, I, I really need to analyze this third game in six days because it's being overblown. Yes, I understand that's the way the schedule played out. They played a Sunday game against Marquette, but they came off of a bye week to play that Marquette game. And in the Big East, you play either like a Wednesday, Saturday, or you play like a Thursday, Sunday. You play two games a week traditionally. So I'm sorry. It's not like the Big East decided to screw them and pack in three games into this week. They had their two weeks, their two game schedule. And in the week prior, they only had one. And then they had two games this week. This happens throughout the time on the schedule. It just depends on where your two games fall. It's like he has this excuse lined up. And on top of that, Georgetown had their bye week. It's not fair that Georgetown had their bye week when we had to play two games. So what's the excuse for why we laid an egg against Marquette in terms of execution when we had our bye week? When we have a bye week and we don't play well, Kevin complains, we were rusty. It's not fair, we were rusty. But then when somebody else has the bye week and they execute well, well, that's not fair, they had a bye week. It can't be a double standard. That's my problem with these quotes. Double standard. You want the coach to be your ultimate alpha. I'm going to point, I'm going to make one point. We're going to move on here. Coach DeFalco from the women's team tweeted out something interesting earlier this morning. He said, nothing like a Sunday off. We just completed six games in 13 days in four states. Wasn't easy, but we made it through. No excuses. We did it. We made it through. We're better for it. We're moving on. Come on, Tommy. That's not fair. If they didn't have to play that many games in a short period of time, they might have beaten UConn. They might not have ran out of gas in the fourth quarter. Maybe they pull off that crate, that DePaul game, and, and they get their signature win. Let's let's put the ladies in the tournament because the schedule wasn't fair. I mean, that, that's the difference, right? That's the difference. Speaking of moving on, Mike, this week, what do we got? We've got Butler. Butler's been five and seven since the last time we played him, not counting whatever happens at tonight's game against Xavier. But two of those wins came against lowly DePaul. But they also beat St. John's and Creighton at home, both times in OT. Aaron Thompson, their senior leader, is back. But Bryce Enzi did miss their last game with a groin injury against Marquette. I'm done talking about Butler. Are we, are, we done, are we done with the preview for Butler? I, I don't think there's a whole lot to talk about against Butler. Butler has not been a good team this year. Uh, they've got some, the only bright spots they've really had were 
from their freshmen being kind of forced into playing. They've had some uh, they've had some good moments individually, but as a team, it's not a good team. But Mike, we said the same thing about DePaul. We've said the same thing about Marquette. And we actually let a team like Georgetown, who started off the season poorly, but has been playing better recently, take the fight to us. So, I don't know, man. So, on any given night, especially on the road, you can lose a Big East Conference game, right? So, you've seen Butler, even throughout their struggles, beat St. John's and Creighton in their building. Both games had to go to overtime, but they have the ability to still put a competitive effort on the floor. And they were pretty competitive against us, even without Aaron Thompson the first time. That game was closer than it should have been back at the Rock. Point is, we didn't say flat out that any of these other three games were must-wins. We just assumed that they had to take care of business, and they probably would. But by slipping up in that game against Georgetown, this game has nothing to do with anything else in terms of matchups. This is now a gut check must win for the Pirates. Tommy, there's nothing else to say. They have to win this game. Absolutely. And and then let's let's move on because if you put this one behind you and and get it in the wing column, now we can start talking about where that's going to project them for the home stretch in March versus UConn and at St. John's because I don't think it's a foregone conclusion that they go two and one in this three-game stretch and they're in the tournament. I personally think they really need to run the table and win all three and not leave it up to the committee and put themselves in the fate of the bubble. So I think we're going to do more about this next week. I'm re- I really want to dive into the bubble next week when we only have that one game against Butler and crunch the numbers like I like to do. But I want to start setting the table as to setting the perspective as to where Seton Hall is relative to what this Georgetown loss did to them. Tom, they're now 49th in the net and they're 38th in the Ken Palm. The NCAA tournament has 36 at-large bids. You basically have about 21 conferences that are one big conferences. So when you kind of shake out all those numbers, you want to be right around, you know, like ranked 46 to 50 in the country in terms of, you know, where you stack rank to get one of those 36 at-large bids. They're 49th in the metrics for the net. Whether you like the net or not, the committee's basically saying we're going to use that as a good barometer for where we're going to kind of line things up. So you are right there on that cut line, whether you like it or not. Do you think it makes sense to lose another game at that point? We've given ourselves no outs at this point. Like we brought up before, like we've brought up in previous episodes, we had wins we should have taken just because we knew something down the pipe was happening. So yeah, I mean, we're talking about a scenario where they need to win all three of these at this point. I mean, but let's break down what we've done so far this season. Sure, sure. Because we started off this podcast by saying, you know, you're supposed to win some that you weren't supposed to, and you're going to lose some that you weren't supposed to. But what have we really done? Well, we've had good wins against the following. We, we beat a Xavier team has got a net 50. We beat UConn whose net's 54, but we did beat them without their best player, James Booknight. So that might come up and bite us in the ass on the way out. We beat St. John's to open up the Big East Conference. This is a better St. John's team now than they were back then, Mike. And we beat Penn State, who's got a net of 41. But that's not a good team, Mike. They're 7-11. and 11. I agree, but that's it's being put in the good win column because of the net. I think when the committee sits down and looks at your team resume sheet, 
they're going to go, oh, okay, I'm going to take the Penn State game out of the mix here. They're an outlier in terms of the net metrics. Like Colgate is an outlier in terms of the net metrics. And to be honest, if you look at Penn State's schedule, they're probably going to lose another three or four down the stretch. And before you blink, they're not going to be a net 41. And, and then their losses are marginal. They're not bad, but they're marginally bad, right? You got the game at home versus Providence, which in our eyes, we're like, oh, yeah, Providence is a perennial good team in the Big East. But they're a net 85 right now. URI, net 92, true road game. They're 10 and 12. 10, they're in the middle of the A-10. I think the committee looks at that and goes, yeah, that's not really a good loss. And then on top of that, you have the game against Georgetown. So, yes, I know that's going to be a quad two loss, but Georgetown is still a below 500 team, you know, with a net of 107 at this point. Tom, it's, it's really a vanilla schedule. There's nothing outrageously horrible, but there's nothing really noteworthy or impressive. So what, in my opinion, you really want to win out here and play your way into the field and they're, you know, kind of control your own destiny. Losing is going to leave other bubble teams with a chance to jump you. I, I just want to give you a couple quick examples of what I mean by other teams on the bubble can take control and jump ahead of you, right? So yesterday, North Carolina beats Louisville by, get this, 45. 45! 99 to 54. And they jumped their net from a 53 to 33 they jumped 20 spots in the net because of one one victory north carolina in most bubble bracketology was on the outside looking in you think they're in now and and i'll give you another one yesterday duke also beats number seven virginia by a single point and now has won three in a row and they are up in the net to 55 and the first thing that i see on the front page of espn's newsfeed is Welcome to the bubble, Duke. Everyone had written them off for dead, but the minute they got one game, they couldn't wait to put them back on the front pages of let's talk about Duke. Can we get Duke in the tournament? So let me ask you this. You want to tell me that if we're on the bubble and it comes down to picking between teams like us or UNC or Duke, that you have the confidence that we're going to make the cut? We could be you know, 14 and two or some crazy number in conference. And we'll get bumped by UNC and Duke. I mean, let, let, let's be honest and truthful here. They're going to get that extra rub because they're the Blue Bloods. People love the Blue Bloods. And you know what? No matter how much the committee says they don't bring this into factor, they want ratings, Mike. And UNC and Duke bring ratings. So it doesn't matter. Just like you pointed out that team from 20 years ago that Louis Orr had that didn't get chosen for the tournament, we're going to be in the same scenario here. So you got to have these wins coming up. Uh, all I'm trying to get with this initial analysis is stop thinking that 12 is good enough. 12 is going to put you potentially in a precarious situation and it's going to put your fate in the hands of a lot of other teams, including the committee. And we also don't have a definitive solution yet as to what's going to be happening in these conference tournaments where teams might decide to opt out. It's been thrown out there casually, but what if the WCC doesn't have Gonzaga play and a team that was not expected to make the tournament wins that qualifying bid? Does Gonzaga go and 
that team go? Because that's another team off the list. You're going to have bid stealers. Bid stealers typically happen in general. And now you may have teams opting out. And we don't know if that's going to be now an automatic bid stealer. So we're talking about ranked somewhere between 46 to 50 to be on the cusp. And depending on how this bid stealer situation works out, you might need to be in like the top 42. And we're not there. All Seton Hall can do is take care of business with what's in front of it. And right now it's Butler. What do you got happening this week? I don't know. I mean, they have to win. I, I, I'm beating a dead horse a year again. They have to win. And you're going you're gonna to hate me for bringing this up. I think it comes down to what do we get from Bryce Higgins? Oh, Mike, stop it. He's out indefinitely. We're not getting anything out of Bryce. Even if he comes back, they're going to have him on the minutes restriction. Mike, he's not coming back. Stop it. We need him back. We need him back. He's not coming back. And I don't know. Then I don't know what the outcome is here. I don't know how all of a sudden you flip a switch and the way that they played in the last three games all of a sudden changes just because now it's a must win at Butler. I just don't get it. There are fundamental flaws with how the offense is being run. And Bryce sometimes brings an element that's different that makes the offense go. Willard had it in a lot of his post-game quotes as well. We didn't bring those out. So I I don't know. They have to win. They, They should win, but I don't know. You're driving me up a wall here, okay? Last time Seton Hall played Butler, Bryce Aiken played 14 minutes, scored two points, okay? Don't give me this nonsense that Butler game is dependent on whether Bryce Aiken plays or not. He he can play, he cannot play. We should have no problem beating this team. This is a bad Butler team. They've got really nothing left to play for. We're always talking about how tough a place Hinkle is to play. But you know what? We've done really well in the past four years at Hinkle, and this, again, is not a good Butler team. In the last four times at Hinkle, we're 3-1. and one. It's got more aura than it deserves at this point. Mike, we go out there. You know what I'm doing right now? I got a real nice DM from a Left Coast Pirates listener in Florida named Bill Whelan. And at the end of it, he said, keep the faith. Well, in general, I'm having a hard time keeping the faith, but I don't see us losing the Butler. You know what? It's a Wednesday night game. So at least the, uh, you know, the, the sunlight's not going to be peeking through and throwing off the sight lines. How about that? <laughs> well, whatever happens, Mike, Win, lose, or draw, we're still going to be sitting there watching, screaming at the TV, saying, go Pirates. Go Big Blue. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Left Coast Pirates. Be sure to follow us on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any other of your favorite listening platforms. Also, be sure to follow us on Twitter with our handle, at Pirates. We are also proud members of the What You Expect Network of Podcasts. And don't miss out on any of our previous episodes that include interviews with Seton Hall legends, Danny Calandrillo, Mark Bryant, Andrew Gaze, Shaheen Holloway, and many others. For Tom Kaharski, I'm Mike Desiri, and you've been listening to Left Coast Pirates. (laughs) 